there are three main things that are interacting all the time uh, when we look at virus survival, virus uh, inactivation or risk assessment, which is weather activity, temperature of the process, and the composition, the feed composition. Those three variables interact all the time and we don't really understand what is the effect of those three variables on virus survival. A whole new era of communication in the feed mill industry is coming. Now you have the brightest minds in the global feed mill industry right in your pocket. And what's best? You can listen to all of them while driving to a feed mill, to a farm, traveling, or running errands. It's never been this good, and it's never been this simple. We want to thank the innovative companies and products whose support and trust make this podcast possible. Ivonic Animal Nutrition. We are sciencing the global food challenge. Eastman works with you to accelerate your nutrition program innovation. Welcome to the Feed Science Podcast Show, a weekly podcast where you'll find cutting-edge insights and all that's working in the global feed mill industry. Ivonic Animal Nutrition is committed to ensure food security and safety while reducing the ecological footprint of animal farming. Its products and services use evidence-based solutions that seek to promote animal welfare and reduce reliance on natural resources. All this is underpinned by long-standing industry partnerships and deep customer understanding. Ivonic's focus on efficiency, sustainable, healthy nutrition, and collaborations with livestock farming partners creates value for customers and consumers. Hello, welcome to the Feed Science Podcast. Uh, I'm your host, Ron Hollenbeck, and today we're joined uh, by Fernando San Pedro at the University of Minnesota. Welcome, Fernando. Thank you. Uh, welcome, everybody. Uh, if you would, uh, just give us a little background, uh, history on yourself, what you do, anything you'd like to share. Sure. Um, I'm originally from Spain, so I did my PhD in food science over there. And then I came to the U.S. 2009. I did a postdoctoral research at um, USDA, uh, working mainly in food safety. And then I landed at Minnesota, University of Minnesota in 2011. And I've been doing a lot of work related to food safety uh, and risk analysis. And lately, in the last five years, I've been more involved in feed safety and in activation of viruses, risk assessment, processing, uh, all, all that, that uh, uh, activities. And, and it was very, very interesting, uh, working mainly with uh, feed nutritionists, virologists, um, veterinarians. So it was a great experience to have different disciplines working together in that field. So how... Uh, if, if you would kind of describe uh, what you'd like to share with uh, share with everyone on the podcast today and kind of, I guess, take off the discussion, if you would, please. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, actually, one of the topics that uh, intrigues me a lot and I've been sharing this concept, you know, when I'm teaching courses or giving a talk is the difference between hazard and risk. And, you know, uh, so the so risk assessment is a discipline that, you know, uh, has been 
for years apply, right, uh, to solve uh, like uh, complex issues or, or trying to give an answer to risk managers like uh, uh, food safety agencies or government agencies, right? But sometimes, you know, just the presence of a virus or a bacteria doesn't mean that the consumer or the animal will get sick. And, you know, sometimes we say, oh, yeah, African swine fever, right? I mean, just the presence of the virus doesn't mean that the animals or, you know, or, you know, let's say salmonella, right, uh, that the person will get sick, right? There is something that sometimes we forget, and, and it's the dose or concentration of the hazard in the portion or sample that a person or animal will consume, right? And if we look at viruses like um, like Porcema epidemic diarrhea virus, PDV, right? Uh, there have been studies already done on what is the actual oral dose for a pig to get infected. And we're talking about a very small dose, like 50 particles, right, uh, per gram of, of the uh, feed sample to, uh, to a pig to get infected, right? But if we talk about African swine fever, for example, we talk about hundreds of thousands particles, right, in a feed sample for a pig to get infected. And what, that's one, one part of it, right? The second part of it is most of the uh, detection methods that we're using, like quantitative PCR, they measure the amount of virus, but we don't know if the virus is infective or not. So again, just the presence of the virus, just saying that the virus is present doesn't mean that the animal or, you know, uh, or let's say salmonella, someone will get infected. So we need to know what is the infective concentration of the virus of the bacteria in that sample. So that's kind of the difference. And then, then we can apply those response models, right? We can apply the risk assessment methodology to know, okay, what is the likelihood for an animal to get infected based on the concentration of that virus? And if we look at the feed chain, we can also say, okay, what could be the concentration in a raw material, in an ingredient? What are the different steps that the feed will go through, right? Like thermal process, Sometimes we do a storage, right? And that will count in terms of how the virus will behave through that feed chain processes. And, you know, that's how we use risk assessment. And that's why we use risk assessment, right? Because we want to make sure that we go beyond the presence of a virus of a bacteria and look really at what is the final risk of an animal or a person to get infected with that. When, when you talk about the, the particle concentration in a sample, let's, uh, let, let's say soybean meal. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, you know, and we'll, we'll just say that it's uh, in a standard girl finished diet, let's say it's 12% of the diet. So, I mean, you have a, a, a concentration of the virus in the soybean meal. It gets mixed into a complete feed. It gets diluted. Uh, is is it known how how much how many particles the animal has to consume before they become infected? Um, I mean, when and this is maybe a stupid question, but I just I struggle. When, when we talk about, uh, you know, concentration of particles in a sample, 
you know, when you make feed out of it, it gets diluted. So uh, how does that how does that impact the in, the infection of the animals? No, that's a great question. That's a great question. So that's part of the risk assessment, right? Uh, uh, modeling that you do. So actually, you could start with the uh, soybeans, you know, before processing and simulate what could be the potential concentration, let's say, because there is fecal material, you know, contamination for a wild boar, for example, right, in the field. So you could say, okay, this is the amount that we could find in a fecal material, how much gets into the soybeans, right? What is the process of manufacturing soybean meal, correct? So you are trying to model, right, how much concentration of the virus is surviving the process. And then you have the soybean meal, right, that it will be mixed with other ingredients to manufacture a complete feed, right? And you're completely right. Yeah, there is dilution factor in it. And then you need to take into account what are the species, Different species will have different, you know, ratios, right, of different ingredients, right, and ages of the animal, right, piglets versus finish, you know, like you have all these different variables that you can put into the model to predict at the end of the day, right, what is the risk, how many animals could potentially get infected based on an initial concentration, right, you can... Uh, that's the nice thing about the risk assessment model. You can connect all those modules to predict you know, at the end, how many animals could get infected. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's, I, as you can tell by some of these questions, I'm not real well versed in, in, in what you're explaining. My, my background's on the, the operation side and feed. So, I mean, as I mean, we've always talked about, um, you know, let's say in the pelleting process, um, we want a minimum of 180 degrees uh, at the conditioner to hopefully kill anything that's uh, that may be present in 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 the feed ingredients. And um, and I've I've said in on a couple of of presentations from um, uh, university folks that. Uh, have done all of this this research and analysis and uh, like when you start talking about African swine fever and how uh, you know, my understanding anyway is how difficult it is to kill um, it's it's honestly it's quite scary from a, from a feed mill perspective because I, with with current um, current technologies and the way feed mills are currently run, I, it, it doesn't appear from a, a, a procedure or processing standpoint, we'd be able to kill that virus at the feed mill if it were, if it were present uh, in, in any of the ingredients. Uh, I mean, what are your thoughts and experiences on that? Because to me, it's, it's, it's really scary if that if that virus hits this country, it's it's going to change our world. Yeah, and and African swine fever, it's it's I would say it's an special virus in that sense, and how stable it is, how thermally stable it is. The other thing that I want to bring also here is some concepts. I think some concepts some concepts that we're using in food safety can be applied to feed safety. For example, if you want to validate let's say, uh, you know, pelleting, right? 
there is already a methodology that, for example, the Food Safety Modernization Act, right, FISMA uh, from FDA, is telling all the food companies, you need to validate your preventive controls, right, processing controls, right? So there is already a methodology or using a surrogate or, you know, getting the time temperature conditions of the product, you know, against the hazard that you want to inactivate and make sure that you're reaching, let's say, three, four, five log reductions, right? That's a concept that most of the food companies are using. Why we, I think it will be very interesting to apply the same concept to like, let's say, you know, pelletine, right? That you were mentioning, right? Or any conditioning that you are doing. And the key here is to measure the actual product temperature, so I've seen some of the uh, processing conditions that you measure the air temperature, but you don't measure the product temperature, and that's key, right? You need to know what is the product temperature in order to validate your process, right? The problem with African soy fever is we don't have a clear surrogate, right? I mean, like a virus that is completely safe, that we can put in a feed sample, run through pelletine in a pilot plant, right? and establish the conditions, right? And measure the concentration at the beginning, at the end, doing the replicates, right? And doing the current methodology to, yeah, understand if the virus is being inactivated, right? We are doing some work at the University of Minnesota to try to find a surrogate for African swine fever, uh, but that's not easy because it needs to behave the same as the actual virus, right? So uh, Dr. Declan, he's a virologist at the University of Minnesota, he found uh, algae virus that behaves very similarly to African swine fever. And we are publishing uh, uh, that uh, uh, research, right, to show that, yes, we have found a surrogate and we can start validating some of the processes, right, in the feed manufacturing uh, uh, operations, as you said, to make sure that the conditions may or may not inactivate African swine fever, right? Um, but we can use other viruses like PDV or other viruses, and we can do the same methodology of validation that we have used in food safety. Have you done much work on, uh, you know, how, how different viruses, uh, you know, if they're in an ingredient, uh, then that ingredient dust is gonna end up in the mill uh, you know how that virus will get will get tracked through the mill and and continue uh, you know increase spread I guess of of that pathogen throughout the mill as well into as well as into uh, you know future feed productions. I haven't per se, but I know that other universities uh, in the U.S., like Kansas State, they have done a lot of work on, on cross-contamination in feed mills and how virus can, you know, uh, be persi persistent in some surfaces, you know, and then how the cross-contamination can, can be. There's a lot of work done in PDB, for example, uh, on that. The beauty about risk assessment, if I can, I can take that data put it into a model and a model the transfer coefficients, right? That's called, you know, transfer coefficients. So we can model, you know, like a regular uh, a feed mill operation. And, you know, what will be the changes in concentration, you know, throughout the day or throughout a week, 
right, based on those transfer coefficients. So the beauty about risk assessment, if we can take data from different articles, different research papers, and putting everything into a model to simulate what the behavior of a, of a virus will be. The other thing that I wanna bring, bring up also to the conversation is the concept of water activity. So water activity, it's a concept that we have used in food safety for quite a long time to explain the behavior of bacteria at foodborne viruses in samples. And most of the studies that have been, have been done in the US at least, right, with viruses to explain the behavior of a virus in a feed ingredient, the problem is you add liquid into a feed sample. So the moment that you add liquid in a feed sample, you completely change the moisture and water activity of that sample. So when you are trying to simulate what is the virus behavior, right, in that sample, that completely changes, right, the conditions because it's not a dry sample anymore. You have added water, and we know that water will um, increase virus survival, right? So I will say that most of the uh, inoculation studies that you can find in published studies the biggest limitation is that we're completely changing the water activity conditions of the sample. So uh, we don't know really what will be the behavior if we could do like what is called dry heat, right? Like heating a sample, right? With a virus in dry conditions without altering the water activity. And water activity is a concept that we need to research more we need to explain better how water activity will affect virus, swine or, you know, animal viruses in feed matrices. Well, that's interesting because, I mean, it, as we get back to the pelleting process, I mean, we're adding steam. We need to add, add moisture to that, uh, to that feed in the conditioner so we can press it through the dye. And, I mean, we... Our goal is, I guess, at the, the, the cooler to take the water that was added in the conditioning process, take that water out. But, you know, I would say in most, um, you know, most large scale feed mills, um, I don't know how much that's really tested to, to confirm that, because from a, you know, just from a pure cost perspective, uh, you don't want to take more moisture out than you put in because then you're, uh, you know, you're essentially losing, um, losing money because you've, uh, what you scaled up for that ton of feed is now less than that. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't know that there's, uh, you know, a lot of, a lot of study that's been done on, verifying our, our coolers or the way we're operating the coolers, um, you know, doing what, uh, what, what we think needs to be done. But if I understand what you just said from a um, bacteria uh, or pathogen, I guess, uh, perspective, we'd probably be better off if we dried it beyond what it initially was. Uh, I mean, that's, a, uh, that, that's certainly a new concept in, in, in how we operate feed mills today and what we may need to be looking at changing for tomorrow. 
And that's a great point because we could think about a critical control point based on moisture. Mm-hmm. Saying you need to reach this minimum moisture, you know, in order to assure that whatever virus or bacteria is surviving the process, one, you know, it will die off because of the low in moisture content of the sample. And, you know, so we always focus on temperature and we know that temperature, of course, that's a traditional method to kill the pathogen. But what about moisture? We never thought about moisture content and moisture content has a huge impact as well on the survival of viruses or bacteria in a feed sample. Well, and, and, and in feed mills, we, oh, I'll speak for myself anyway, I liked liquid ingredients because they can be pumping into, into the mixer and you're not having to uh, you know, scale up those, say, amino acids uh, in, in the micro scale. Uh, so you may be adding, you know, liquid lysine or liquid methionine, uh, you know, adding choline in certain diets. Well, I mean, that's that's adding to that moisture content in in the feed. And back to the same pelleting concept, you're we're starting out at a higher moisture uh, because a, a percentage of those ingredients is water. Um, yeah, we're potentially making this this issue worse yeah could be could be but that's the beauty about validation and and modeling and and inoculation studies with surrogates that you can mimic the conditions of pelleting in a pilot plant you can change different moisture contents right adding different ingredients you know liquid dry and trying to mimic the behavior of 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 those viruses uh, at the end the other thing that I want to bring also is a storage. Storage has an effect on viruses survival. So we know, for example, for uh, we did a project with uh, porcine plasma producers, and it's clear, the research is clear on if we extend the storage for, let's say, a couple of weeks uh, at room temperature, that will also inactivate the virus, will make the virus not infectious, right, with time. And that's a concept that also, you know, we need to explore more. Or let's say transoceanic shipments, there's been some work done also on that. Yeah, viruses will, will be inactivated, you know, with time in a dry environment, right? It also depends on the temperature. If we are in a freezing temperatures, the reduction will be very small. But if we're at room temperature, viruses won't survive in that dry environment of a feed with time. So that standard storage is also a concept that, you know, uh, also important. It's another additional step or additional hurdle for, for the virus. So are you seeing ingredient manufacturers changing uh, their, their, their processes or... Um, you know, from a from a storage standpoint, quarantining uh, products for uh, you know a longer period of time than they used to. How is that changing uh, the the ingredient uh, suppliers' world? Yeah, I've seen I've seen uh, like feed manufacturers like extending the storage before using the ingredients when they are coming overseas. One of the key aspects is to fine tuning what is the temperature right temperature to storage the ingredients, right? Because if you increase too much the temperature and you have some humidity in, let's say, a grain-based, 
ingredient, you may also affect quality or safety, right, of the ingredient. You may increase mold growth, and that could be mycotoxins, right, or potentially salmonella could grow in the product, right? So fine-tuning the right temperature, not going too really high, but like allowing, like, you know, enough temperature for the virus to be inactivated with time, that's part of the research also that we need to fine tune. But I've seen, definitely I've seen feed manufacturers like having warehouses where they keep the ingredient for more time at room temperature to as an extra layer of safety. Are, are you involved or, or have you, um, I guess, heard of any, any additional research occurring for um, you know, if, if if we make the assumption that uh, at the feed mill level we uh, we we won't be able to fully uh, inoculate the virus from our with our current current processing capabilities, are there um, you know uh, more? research and investigation being done on, you know, potential chemical treatments. I know there's a, a few out on the market today that, uh, uh, you know, I think certainly have, uh, have success in, um, in, in inoculating uh, those, some of those viruses and bacteria. Is, it just, is, there, is there additional research uh, being conducted that, uh, uh, to to improve or increase the 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 number of uh, you know say chemical treatments that will be available in the marketplace. Uh, yeah, we have done some research at the University of Minnesota, like uh, evaluating some of the chemicals and what is the effect of some like swine viruses. Um, I will they, they work, you know, but I will say that's an extra cost, right? We're adding cost to the uh, manufacturing process, right? I will say that the decision to add a chemical should be risk-based. We know that there are ingredients that because of the process, because of the conditions that they are harvested or because of the condition of the raw materials, they are a low risk ingredients. So, and the process, the nature of the ingredients will take care of any potential contamination, right? So I will say that, you know, uh, in order to make the decision to use a chemical, right, as additional protection layer should be for the high risk ingredients. Ingredients that come from overseas that may be contaminated with fecal material, you know, we don't have any really process, any thermal process to potentially kill the virus, has a short shelf life, right, a short storage, maybe the moisture content is high, so we start to see what are the risk factors that will affect us as manufacturers, right? The decision to say, okay, we really need an extra layer of protection, which could be extended storage, could be adding a chemical, but that won't be, I would recommend that to any ingredient, right? I mean, it has to be risk-based and we need to make the decision based on those risk factors. Okay, good. Um, what other research and, and and things have you conducted that would be of value to to discuss with the audience today i think we, we have touched a lot of different concepts and a lot of different research uh aspects i will say 
there are three main things that are interacting all the time uh, when we look at virus survival, virus uh, inactivation or risk assessment, which is water activity, temperature of the process, and the composition, the feed composition. Those three variables interact all the time and we don't really understand what is the effect of those three variables on virus survival, right? We may have a low water activity, high temperature, low temperature, high water activity, and we may have those two control, but then when we inoculate in different feed ingredients, we see that are some ingredients where the virus survives longer and other ingredients where the virus survives much shorter. And we don't know if it's the fat, if it's a protein content, if it's an, I don't know, like an antioxidant compound that the ingredient has that affects virus survival, we don't know that yet. But we see huge differences, right? When we inoculate viruses in different feed ingredients. And again, when we keep water activity and temperature stable, constant, we still see that the feed composition has an effect on virus survival. So we need more research on that to truly understand what's what's happening with with the feed composition and virus survival. And when you say more research is is needed, how uh, how do you go about setting up that research? Who do you who do you work with? Uh, uh, just in general, what's uh, how would that be uh, you know, structured? Right. So I think at universities, we have the beauty to uh, able to form multidisciplinary research teams. Some are food scientists, right? Uh, food safety, risk assessment. And we, I collaborate a lot with feed nutritionists, right? Uh, feed manufacturers, virologists, veterinarians, which bring different expertise to the table, right? And we need all of those uh uh, dimensions to really establish a strong uh, research group. We need lab capabilities. We need a pilot plant. You know, at universities, we usually have pilot plants where we can, you know, do inoculation studies, right, with surrogates. Uh, so all of that will be needed, uh, you know, in order to understand that. How you re uh, design the research, I will say you start with a basic uh, like ingredient, and you add different concentration of protein, different concentration of fat, you know, so you start to do one variable at a time and measure what, what is the effect of increasing the fat concentration or the protein concentration or other key uh, components of the feed into virus survival, you know, and you do enough replicates to get the results that you want, and then you establish inactivation kinetics, and with that, you can say, okay, what is the net effect of protein? What is the net effect of fat? What is the net effect of, I don't know, mineral, minerals, or vitamins that may have antioxidant uh, potential and affect virus survival? So you do one step by step, step by step, and, and, and evaluating one variable at a time. That's how, how I envision conducting that type of research. And my mind just... Uh... I, I went to Kansas State and we did some um, some research trials on on feed in the in the pilot mill when I was there and um, I I just 
I understand how that works in a, you know, a, a very small, controlled, uh, low throughput, uh, certainly able to, um, you know, clean everything. I mean, have everything just the way you want it. Um, but when you when you get out into, you know, high production plants that, I mean, you've you've got to put out. 2,500 tons a day just to keep the animals fed. The environment is completely different than uh, than a research environment, and how that, um, uh, you know, how, how what you achieve at, at the research level, how does that get distorted, so to speak, when uh, when it gets into uh, uh, you know a, a real world high capacity production environment. Right, right. So I will say research will give you the critical parameters. You know, what is the moisture content that you should achieve at the end of the process? What is the temperature that you should achieve, right? What are, so, so those are the two critical. What, what is the feed composition if it can be altered in some way to reduce the viability of a virus, right? What are the highest risk ingredients? Research can tell you, okay, in this type of ingredients, you need to add an extra layer of safety. But these ingredients, you are good, you know, you are, it's safe at the way you're producing the ingredient, right? And, and that's what, how we partner with feed manufacturers. You know, we ask, is that feasible? Is that economically feasible to reach that moisture content? As you were saying, right? I mean, water, it's its money at the end of the day, right? You don't want to take out more water that you had initially. Is that feasible to reach that moisture content, right? Is that feasible to reach that pH, for example, or that temperature? Or how we can measure the temperature of the product, as I was telling you, right? But that, Because that's the key parameter to validate a process, not the air temperature, but actual the product temperature. Can we put like a thermometer or something, a probe, right? into the product to measure that. So research will tell you critical parameters, but then the feed manufacturers will tell you if that's economically feasible or not, how low they can go, right, in their processes, right? So that's kind of the good and, and flu, you know, fluently conversation that we need to have with feed manufacturers, you know, from research, pilot plan, into a large-scale production. Yeah, I mean, we've we've talked a fair amount about pelleting, but there are an awful lot of feed mills in this country who do not have pelleting capabilities. Uh, do you, uh, at the university level, work directly with equipment manufacturers to, um, you know, to develop, uh, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, air heat treatment or, or whatever for uh, for mash feed mills who do not have the you know the capability for for steam processing uh, of the feed. That's that's a good question. We haven't uh, worked directly with uh, equipment manufacturers. I remember at some point reaching out to some manufacturers to see if they could like a lease, like different equipment that we needed for our research project, but I wasn't directly involved. But that's a dimension that we need also to take into account, right? And it's like in food safety, the hygienic design and how do you design the equipment? This is kind of a similar concept, right? How you design the equipment to make sure like 
achieve the conditions that are critical for for feed safety. And, and that's a conversation that we need to have as well, right? Uh, not only with feed manufacturers, but also with equipment manufacturers. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because yeah, there's, I mean, I, I would venture to say there are way more uh, feed mills in operation today who do not have, don't have a boiler, don't have any, any kind of, of steam heat treatment available. Um, I mean, we, we tend to think about, I mean, certainly the, the, you know, the large integrators uh, who, uh, you know, who, who believe in pelleting and, and the, the effects and the, uh, the growth uh, improvement for, uh, for heat processing ingredients. Uh, I mean, they, they'll typically have, have the pelleting systems and those are uh, a lot of the, the very high capacity feed mills that, uh, that, that are out there today, at least in the United States. Um, so it's, you know, I've worked with some, some of these, uh, companies and talked about, uh, how do we, uh, improve, um, you know, the, any, any type of, 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 uh, pathogen spread, how do we improve the pathogen control without, uh, without the ability for any, any heat treatment and it's, I mean, I can definitely see how where there is a need, and as um, you know, more um, more difficult to kill pathogens. Uh, uh, you know, continue to um, continue to arrive or mutate or whatever whatever they do. It's I mean, that's that's going to be something we're going to have to address as an industry. Uh, because if, as you said earlier, the you don't believe uh, you know chemical treatment is uh, you know certainly not your maybe the first line of defense. Uh, it may be may be required, but in a in a feed plant that does not have any heat treatment capabilities, uh, I mean right now that's pretty much the only option uh, there is that uh, that I'm aware of. So I think there. There's certainly a need for uh, for continued uh, work with ingredient man- or excuse me with equipment manufacturers uh, to uh, to provide some alternative options for for pathogen control in the future. Absolutely, and again, everything needs to be risk based. Maybe you know it depends on the ingredient that you are manufacturing. Not everything needs to go through through like thermal treatment. It has to go through a risk assessment and see if it's needed and what other measures you have. You have a storage as well. You know, you have chemicals, as you mentioned, or, you know, the way you're manufacturing or the nature of the ingredient, you are taking care that the the ingredient is safe. You don't need to to add any extra layer of safety. So everything needs to be risk-based for that decision to be made. It's time for our famous three. Eastman serves veterinarians and nutritionists in agrochemical and animal health industries by helping them select, evaluate, and implement innovative nutritional programs. Eastman works with your team to customize your gut health approach in feed and water. Eastman's approach addresses nutritional and bacterial challenges and finds new ingredient preservation and hygiene solutions. Explore ways to accelerate and innovate your programs. 
contact the animal nutrition team at eastman.com. Is there anything else you uh, would like to, to discuss or share before we uh, begin to wrap up this podcast for today? I'm, I think I'm good. I think I, I share all the concepts that I uh, had in mind to share with the audience. Okay, good. Well, there's, uh, there's a few questions we always like to, to end these podcasts with. So can you share uh, what your favorite, um, you know, feed science or nutrition-related resource uh, would be this kind of your 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 go to for for information. I, I don't have a specific resource, but I will say the topic of virus, you know, like virus behavior, virology, you know, like animal viruses and how they behave. I think that will be a, a topic that companies should start looking at, you know. And there are some reviews that have been published on the behavior of different animal viruses on temperature, you know, a moisture content, pH. So that that should be something that feed manufacturers, they should start getting access to and reading because understanding the behavior of viruses will make companies to understand why we need, you know, the, to change anything in my process to kill that specific virus. So, yeah, the feel of viruses and how viruses behave it's fascinating and it's a topic that we should we should get in get, get into that well and, and along those lines i think in um you know i would say your your larger integrated systems you know there there is more discussion about viruses and transmission and and how do we limit that transition and and uh, you know, spread whether it is within the feed mill or uh, from um, from site to site uh, for for animal production. But as you get as you look at uh, you know a lot of the, the smaller uh, feed companies as an example, you know I, I agree. I don't think uh, that uh, th- those discussions happen as as frequently as as they should. And I don't know if that is a, uh, an issue of, uh, it's probably not an issue of not understanding it as a concern. It may be more of an issue of not having that, that person on staff who, who understands it can articulate it and, and help train, um, you know, the feed mill and feed drivers and everybody on, on uh, what they can do to to minimize the spread and uh, and help with uh, help with the you know virus and pathogen control. Uh, how do you have any thoughts on how how those uh, you know smaller feed companies who may not have that expertise on staff to how they could you know access that expertise to to help with their their training uh, of of their staff. Uh, I will say that a couple of ways, right? I mean, I always recommend go at least to a conference each year to get updated in the latest research equipment, you know, uh, guidance, right? Uh, so 
if I will say I don't have any quality control personnel or I'm lacking, I will say go, go to those conferences at least once per year, make the investment, you know, to get updated on the latest research, you know, manufacturing equipment, you know, that's totally worth it. And probably, you know, networking, you know, in those conferences, you meet a lot of different people. And there are a lot of different consultants and consultancy companies Then, actually their job is helping those small companies with the latest research and giving them a very specific practical, right, uh, guidance and how ch- things that need to be changed to make sure that the production is safe. So two things, right? Go to an, at least a national conference per year and then reach out to, you know, consultancy companies if you need help or universities. Sure. Okay. Good. Um, next question. Uh, you know, what would be your 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 favorite uh, you know resource for information? Uh, you know, that may be outside of of you know outside of feed or outside of agriculture. Yeah, I've been thinking about that, and actually, I'm I love the soft skills area. We we teach a lot at university how to like have a communication skills, right? And some of the leadership skills and working with others and working across cultures, right? In this world today, I think soft skills are not taught enough, I think, at universities. We focus a lot on the technical skills and probably you will agree with me that during your work life, soft skills are much more important than what you, uh, that your technical skills how you work with others, how you're able to communicate complex, you know, concepts as we're trying to communicate today, right? Complex issues, right? So most of the people can understand. So there is there was one book that someone recommended that change how I saw myself and how I saw others. It's called Strengths Finder. And it's a book that tells you to focus on, on what are your strengths and not your weaknesses. And at the end of the book, you have like a test that you can do and it finds your top five strengths. And the philosophy of the book, it's it's like, OK, your job, you should apply your strengths into your job. So everybody has a strengths. Your job should be aligned to your strengths. So if, if you are good at communicating, do more courses on communication, be exceptional you know, in communication and not focus on your weaknesses because you will always be bad <laughs> on, 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 let's say, statistics, right, or mathematics. Don't do that. Focus on your strengths and that will make you happier in the job that you are trying to apply for. So, yeah, that will be my recommendation. And uh, that's very good advice, but I, I would say it's uh, it, it, it's – Easier said than done. I know from my perspective, I tend to focus on my weaknesses and how do you improve them, which I agree, it's probably not the right way to approach it, but that's just the way I'm wired. That's where I naturally go. How do you fix what's wrong? (laughs) Um, uh, So the last question, um, in your opinion, what what separates uh, people in the – uh, you know, animal nutrition or or feed science uh, arenas uh, for for who's uh, more successful than others. Uh, what uh, you know, what what attributes or what do you think would uh, helps define uh, people who are more successful? 
Yeah, I will go back to a concept that I was sharing before. Uh, actually, two things. One is uh, collaborating with other disciplines. We try to be our, our world in just one dimension, right? Like feed, feed manufacturing, feed science, feed safety. And, you know, there's other fields, other disciplines that can help us a lot. Nutritionists, veterinarians, food scientists, virologists, right? So I think the successful uh, companies or the successful projects is where you bring those disciplines together and working really, truly together, right? That will be one thing. Second thing, I think we can learn. So in the food science field, we can learn a lot from the food science field. Right. I mean, food safety has been for, you know, like 50 years now, maybe. And the level of uh, success in achieving food safety standards, I think we can learn, you know, the feed manufacturers and feed science can learn a lot from food safety. And look at, you know, the, for example, the concept of water activity, right, that has been very well studied in food safety and bacteria. So I will say the second thing will be, Try to bring food safety concepts into the feed science world and try to learn from that. Yeah, that makes good sense. Uh, well, Fernando, uh, thank you for your time today. Thank you for your insights. It's been, uh, it's been very informational for me, that's for sure. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And I hope that, yeah, it was, it was a, a good information to share. Great. Well, this will conclude our Feed Science podcast for today. Uh, thank you again, Fernando, and thank you for listening. Looking to elevate your brand and captivate audiences through the power of podcasting? Look no further. Introducing the custom podcast brought to you by Wisemetics, where we take care of the behind the scenes so that you can focus on what truly matters. Podcasting has become an invaluable tool for brand awareness, but let's face it, putting it into practice can be a daunting task. It's incredibly time consuming and requires technical know-how, but don't worry, we've got you covered. With our experienced team at The Help, we'll handle the operational aspects so you can channel your energy into what your company does best. Are you ready to unleash the podcasting potential of your company? Schedule a call with one of our specialists today at the link in the bottom of this episode. You'll also receive a free podcast strategy consult tailored to the unique needs and goals of your business.